When you look into a cold case, you stare down the passage of a maze. A house of mirrors, really, of evidence and distortions. Deception, layers of misdirection, keeping people from the truth. Walled-off bodies of evidence, to say nothing of dead ends. You stare into that maze, knowing that you are not the first to enter it. Many have tread here before, their footsteps documented in newspapers, official reports, sometimes even on TV. It's been 22 years since Richard Adderson's homicide. And since then, many have entered the maze and sought the truth, but none have found it. Many investigators have tread inside the maze's long corridors and ultimately surrendered to one of its many dead ends. But we already knew this before we entered. The renewed will for justice is on our side because someone, somewhere, knows. Within the maze stands a cast of characters, some helpful, some adversarial, some silent. What secrets do they know? What secrets might they share? Among them in the maze, nameless, faceless forms move throughout the corridors, in the shadows. Those who know something, but haven't yet come forward. We coax speech from the silent. We discover and sometimes stumble upon new bodies of evidence and walk down false passages to new dead ends of our own. We make silhouettes to be suspects and chase ghosts down mirrored halls. We analyze the paths taken and follow footsteps for paths missed. We analyze the evidence previously discovered and use it to find evidence of our own. In the absence of evidence, we follow echoes. Echoes of what we believe to be the truth. The full story somewhere close, around a corner, just hidden from view. What drives us is that someone, somewhere, knows the truth. From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. In episode six, we followed union leader crime reporter Sissy Taylor's chronicling of the Adderson homicide. Sissy wrote a total of 11 articles on the case and the developments surrounding it. She reported in great detail on each new piece of information in the hope that each new lead would provide the clue that finally broke open the case. More than a year after the murder, Sissy continued to report on new developments, and remarkably, through the effort of law enforcement, Richard's family, the community, and reporters like Sissy, momentum was starting to build. There's a general rule in homicide investigations known as the 48-hour rule, which is based on the notion that if a case is going to be solved, 
it's likeliest to be solved in two days' time. On the flip side, if an arrest is not made within 48 hours, the chances of catching a killer drop precipitously. But how accurate is the 48-hour rule? The Washington Post recently released its examination of 8,000 homicide arrests across 25 major U.S. cities since 2007 and found that in half of those cases, an arrest was made in 10 days or less. In only 30% of cases, did police make an arrest within that 48-hour time frame. Two-thirds of arrests were made within one month of the crime, and for those cases that remain unsolved after a year, only 5% led to an arrest. Let me just add that a series, the first 48, makes this distinction. For homicide detectives, their chance of solving a murder is cut in half if they don't get a lead within the first 48 hours. Did you hear it? If they don't get a lead within the first 48 hours. He never says make an arrest. Making an arrest has a lot more to do with gathering evidence and presenting findings to the district attorney or to a prosecutor. I'd bet my Martin guitar that 99% of homicide detectives care more about a conviction than just an arrest. Nevertheless, the 48-hour rule may be a myth, but in a general sense, it does emphasize the hard fact. Time is the enemy. The passage of time is the co-conspirator that harbors the guilty from justice. The more time passes, the greater opportunity a killer has to distance himself from his crime. Communities become exhausted. The will to continue erodes. Momentum fades. Organizations shuffle leadership and new detectives inevitably inherit old-timers cold cases, all while juggling current ones of their own. The media runs out of leads and find new, more exciting headlines with each new day. The spotlight of attention dims and a killer recedes into the camouflage of the dark. It was seven months after Richard's murder in September of 1997 when we first learned through Sissy Taylor's reporting that an unknown client had enlisted the assistance of McLean, Graff, Rallerson, and Middleton to look into the Adderson investigation. The name of the client had been withheld by the attorney Peter Anderson, citing attorney-client privilege. The mystery client was immediately elevated in the eyes of law enforcement, the media, members of the community, and even Richard's own family as the prime suspect in the homicide. Then, in April 1998, a year and three months after the shooting death of Adderson, the New York State Police dropped a bombshell announcing that Adderson's killer had identified himself as a cop. In the haze of the investigation, a silhouette of the suspect emerged. A law enforcement officer who had hired the prestigious New Hampshire law firm of McLean Middleton. New York authorities immediately began researching the limits of attorney-client privilege. 
have our guy. Or do we? No, I'm positive. It has to be. This is the guy. It's all right there in front of us, and everything fits. We stand in this darkened corridor of the labyrinth, so close to the end, staring at a silhouette of the suspect, the killer. Is that him? Or is it a projection of what we desperately want to see? Police clear dairyman in New York slang, read the union leader headline on November 14th, 1998, nearly two years after Richard Adderson's murder. A suspect had been cleared? The same unidentified client who had engaged the McLean Middleton law firm to look into the Adderson case? The prime suspect in the case? The mystery client, whose name went unpublished, was simply identified as a man who lived in Derry, New Hampshire, a town about 13 miles southeast of Manchester. The Derry man, as the paper referred to him, had recently dropped the McLean law firm and hired a Concord, New Hampshire attorney by the name of James Moore. And according to the union leader, both Moore and the New York State Police alleged that, quote, Peter Anderson refused to cooperate with the investigators, citing attorney-client privilege, and also failed to tell his client for over a year that police had targeted him, end quote. Wait a second. The McLean attorney failed to tell his client for over a year that police were targeting him? Potentially the prime suspect spent a year without knowing it? Do you believe that? Why would any attorney withhold critical information from his client like that, let alone a well-established attorney from McLean Middleton? Now, guilty or not, this just raises more questions, more deception, layers of misdirection. James Moore, the obfuscating lawyer, is like a stock character you encounter in a maze of an investigation. He is a guardian, but not of the truth. He is the guardian of a mysterious client, and he conceals his client in the shadows of the maze's dark corridors while insisting, there's nothing to see here, it's just another dead end. But is it? You peer over his shoulder, trying to make out what's behind him. Who is that silhouette hiding in the dark? And what secret is more guarding? The Union Leader article continued. Investigators spent a year and a half targeting the law firm and its client after Peter Anderson made inquiries about the murder of Richard Adderson on a highway in Fishkill, New York. New York State investigator Matthew Renneman said that the dairyman was one of hundreds of potential New Hampshire suspects that police interviewed in the early stages of the investigation. In many aspects, the dairyman fit the description of Adderson's killer. He drove a green Jeep Cherokee and bore a resemblance to the police composite sketch. But the man from Derry was not a police officer. The killer had told Adderson that he was a cop, although According to both Renneman and Common Sense, he may have been lying. Moore would further allege that his client first learned of the police's interest in him in June of 1998, 
although he had first enlisted the assistance of Peter Anderson in April of 1997. In July of 1998, police once again headed to the City Hall Plaza at 900 Elm Street in Manchester to hand out flyers in front of McLean's offices. But this time, their flyers contained an emotional plea from Adderson's widow, Laura, describing what she and her three children had already endured. The next afternoon, a tipster identified the McLean client. Renneman reported that New York State Police would spend the next several months subpoenaing a wide array of documents, trying to establish if the mysterious client was, in fact, in New York at the time of Richard's homicide. These are people who woke up one morning walking into what seemed like a firestorm, said Moore, who declared that his client wanted to come forward immediately, but he had advised otherwise. Moore asserted that he had previously corroborated the man's alibi himself to ensure that police would treat his client fairly. After months of investigating the dairyman, authorities approached him at his home. The next day, the man and his new attorney, Moore, met with investigators for an hour and a half. Moore claimed that his client had been planning to come forward in a week or so and was making arrangements to hire a New York-based attorney when investigators came knocking. Sounds pretty fucking convenient if you ask me. What took the dairyman so long to come forward? It wasn't until the police showed up on his doorstep that he claimed to have already been planning to come forward. But what if they hadn't knocked? Would he really have come forward? Renneman would go on to say, For a number of reasons, we can say he's not a suspect. The man was in New Hampshire at the time. Police are continuing to check out leads. Obviously, there's someone out there who does know. Now, strangely, Sissy Taylor's name was not on the byline of that November 1998 article in which police exonerated the dairyman who had been the potential prime suspect in the case. Given that Sissy had covered the Adderson case exclusively for the union leader, 11 articles in total, I wondered why she wasn't the one to report this dramatic reversal of assumptions. The article was authored by a gentleman named Derek Rose. 20 years ago, he was a young reporter at the Union Leader. He's now living in Australia, where I reached him by phone. Hello? Derek? Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for... um reaching out and after I, you know, messaged you, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. No worries. Happy to talk. Just remember, it was a long distance call to Australia. And I think I've already proven that I can botch the recording of any local call. It is. It was funny when I got your email, um, cause I had, you know, it is one of those cases that kind of sticks in your head and maybe, uh, Six months ago or so, I, you know, I kind of Googled it to uh, just to see, you know, hey, did they ever get that guy? Because, uh, 
you know, you, you kind of feel for this guy's son and, uh, you know, his family that, that haven't gotten justice. And yeah, it was kind of disappointing that, that you know, nothing had, had ever trans- transpired. Um, I mean, I, I, from everything that, that I read, I don't think, I think that that whole thing with the guy in Derry was just a, was just a dead end. You know, he's probably, probably just out there somewhere and, um, you know, you hope you can, you can finally get him, but, you know, they, 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 I remember reading one of the, someone saying that probably the only way they're going to get him is if he comes forward. Um, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. Derek worked the night shift at the union leader. He stated that Sissy had gone home for the day when the news broke that the dairyman had been cleared by investigators. It was 20 years ago, so some of the details were a bit hazy. But he did say that he was familiar with the Adderson case when he got the update over the wire. He said the Adderson case was all over the news. And America's Most Wanted had just featured the homicide. It was the feeling that police would resolve the case sooner rather than later. Investigators were hot on the trail and closing in. Justice would be served. I asked Derek what his thoughts were about the case. Did he have any reason to think that the dairyman was guilty? He said no. Did he find it suspicious to hear that the dairyman was unaware of the news reports for an entire year? In the era just before the internet, Derek said that it was plausible. We chatted about his time in Manchester, and it was nice to hear from a colleague of Sissy Taylor and a reporter directly involved in the case. Derek was helpful, and I thanked him for his time, but I needed some help in making sense of Derek's versions of events. So we have Mr. Slim Turkey in the studio again after a week in, where were you? Breckenridge, I apologize for missing last week's episode. It's completely my fault. <laughs> no, it wasn't your fault. You were just on vacation. This case hasn't taken a vacation. It's coming up on 22 years right now. Yeah, we need to find this guy. This episode is about Derek Rose's article. piece, mm-hmm. his article in the union leader. Um, and let me get right to the crux of this episode. Derek Rose was an up-and-coming reporter with the union leader when he received a fax from the New York State Police on the evening of November 13th, 1998. That fax led to the publication of the following day's article, which was entitled, Police Clear Dairyman in New York Slang. Now, I'm very torn about what he wrote in the article and what I believe to be true. So according to Derek, a New Hampshire attorney had placed a call to a New York librarian asking for information about local newspapers' coverage of the Adderson homicide. Why do you think one of the largest and most influential law firms in New Hampshire at the time would make a mistake like calling a New York library, not only asking for the information, but then to leave a name and number seems like a rookie mistake. Yeah, I'd never understood that because it's from what I know, most lawyers delegate that 
the menial tasks to somebody else. Something that the secretary usually would do, I think maybe probably an apartment investigator. It's not something that a lawyer typically handles, especially if it's such a big law firm they have. So they have the facilities to have that. They have the resources. Because the, the lawyers are getting paid. X amount of dollars an hour, they need to focus on the, the, you know, the big, the big, the big money items. Right. Is it out of the realm of possibility that Peter Anderson called this New York library asking for information? No, nothing's impossible. He could have obviously done that. I have a theory of why he may have done that, especially if it was an employee of McLean who had approached him and said, Listen, my husband has been questioned by the New York State Police regarding this incident that happened in New York in February 1997. He is innocent, and we're both a little concerned because of the questioning. Also because he drives a green Jeep Cherokee. Also because he bears a resemblance to the man in the Police sketch. Is this the person we talked about that I, yeah, we, we will divulge in another episode? The last thing that I want to say to this about, you know, Peter Anderson actually making a rookie mistake and, and how I would refute it. Peter Anderson right now serves as the director of McLean Middleton's litigation department. And as one of its senior partners. He didn't attain that position by accident, and he didn't attain that position by making rookie mistakes. Uh, One of the other questions that I have is, Peter Anderson felt the need to locate these New York articles. When New York State Police were holding these press conferences in New Hampshire, now they weren't holding them in Manchester. They were going up to the Capitol, Concord. They were going up to police headquarters in Concord. But on several occasions, they did come down to the Manchester area to hand out flyers. And where did they do that? They did that at 900 Elm Street, directly in front of the offices of McLean Middleton. So that just raises another question for me. Why would Peter Anderson have to call up a New York library? to find out information about the case when he could just read the latest updates into the Richard Adderson investigation in his own local paper. Even he, he even like, like we said, going back to the facilities before, he would have a private investigator to say, hey, what, is there any new leads or is there any new information that I should be made aware of so that it can be brought back to him and he can digest it and review it without him having to go and reach the New York library, right? Isn't that what the private investigator is there to do? Yeah. Is there to do all the legwork, bring it back to the lawyer and say, hey, this is what I have. Here you go, you know, consume it as you, consume it as you need. And in, in bringing it back to the New York State Police were, really for that first year and a half, while Sissy was reporting the uh, the developments in the case, New York State Police were up in, in Manchester or in Concord yeah, why quite were, frequently. Yeah, yeah, why were quite they frequently. There? Because they were investigating. They yeah, were no, following but, leads. But the, the cops are not going <laughs> to go somewhere on an investigation just because of nothing. No, you're right. But what I... So the point I'm making is that 
on two separate occasions. As soon as they found out that the dairy man, the mystery client of McLean Middleton, had in fact hired McLean to represent him, the New York State Police immediately went up there and started handing out these flyers. They handed out flyers in the hopes that someone in that area might recognize this guy from walking into the building, presumably to speak with Peter Anderson. You don't think that Peter Anderson, even if he wasn't there on that day, you don't think that Peter Anderson would have been told? Listen, New York State Police, along with New Hampshire State Police, were in the front of our building handing out flyers. Yeah, water cooler talk. To find out who your client is. Yeah. Water cooler talk. I'm just, you know, stating that Peter Anderson would have known that the police, the police were, were there, there. Mm-hmm. on multiple occasions. On multiple occasions. Manchester is a small city with a small town feel, and word inevitably travels quickly. The other thing that I wanted to refute, and, and so Derek Rose writes about this couple. He's not only writing about the dairy man but he's writing about the dairyman's wife. So they had learned enough about the initial investigation and then the description of the suspect for them to believe that the husband could be falsely accused in April 1997. Yeah, because they were there two months after. They retained the services of McLean Middleton in two months. Why would anyone go get a Why would anyone go get an attorney? Well, I'll tell you why. Matthew Renneman explains in that article that the dairyman was one of hundreds of potential New Hampshire suspects that police had interviewed in the early stages of the investigation. Remember, they were investigating all potential leads. Every owner of a green, cheap Cherokee was being canvassed. Right. So then now they have a suspect who drives a late model green Jeep Cherokee. And wow, he bears a resemblance to the police sketch. I think that scared the couple. And then the couple enlists the services of McLean Middleton. You're interrogated, not interrogated, interrogated is too You're brought in for questioning. You're brought in for questioning. You voluntarily go in. Say, yeah, I have a green Jeep Cherokee. Wow. You know what? You actually look a lot like this guy as well. Where were you on February fifth, nineteen ninety seven? Oh, I was, I was in, I was in Derry, I was in Manchester. In your mind, it becomes more of just friendly questioning. Maybe they have a hunch. Maybe you can hear the hunch in their voices. Maybe you hear a hunch in their questioning, and you get nervous. You tell your wife who may be a legal assistant, a paralegal, a legal secretary herself. And she says, geez, dairy man, we need to speak to an attorney. So they go to this influential law firm that would ultimately doubly insulate them from the reach of law enforcement. Because remember, McLean then hires its own attorney. Put yourself in that position. You get nervous enough to hire an attorney, and then you never watch TV, and you never read another newspaper. You're oblivious. <laughs> and for, so this is April 1997. 14 months. Oh, no. 
No, November would be no, not November, but June, because that's when. So twelve. It's fourteen months then. Fourteen months. Does that make sense to you? No, not at all. It's a little suspicious. It's definitely suspicious. Knowing what you know about Derek Rose's article, do you agree with him that although some of the facts may seem incredible, that they remain plausible? I took it at face value. You took his article at face value? Yeah. I was baffled at the fact that the one lead, the one person who had been the kind of almost the focal subject, uh, the focal point of this investigation, once the New York State finally got 90 minutes to speak with him directly, that all of a sudden now they said, all right, it's cleaned up. He's not, uh, he's not a person of interest anymore. We're back to square one. And I was like, that's pretty peculiar. But I was like, I just took it on the on his journalistic integrity that he was, you know, writing a you know a forthcoming story. So this article, and Derek Rose had explained that this article had come in to the union leader off hours, off hours by fax. Sissy had gone home for the night. He was the crime reporter for the evening shift. He went with it and wrote about it. Well, he said he spoke to the. He spoke to the police at that time and the lawyer and the law firm. He um, he did get in touch with, he attempted to get in touch with Peter Anderson. He had spoken with uh, Mr. Moore, Mr. Okay. James Moore. And he actually spoke with Mr. Thomas Donovan, chairman of McLean's management committee, who said, I can't comment one way or another because of attorney-client privilege. So he made the effort, okay. not only to get in touch with the attorney, Peter Anderson, but also to get in touch with the firm. That being said, this information comes in five hours earlier. It's faxed to the union leader at 12 o'clock instead of, say, five o'clock. Does Sissy Taylor write the same article? I can't imagine, no. Or is she going to question some of the assumptions that you have to make for... To believe this 100%, is she going to question it in her article? Of course. Had she written it? Yeah. She had, she had spent 11 articles. Keeping 18 up, months. 18 months and 11 articles detailing this case. And then in one fell swoop, it's gone. Back to square one. Of course you would. That's like, you know, she had a hunch. She was usually on something. I'm going to give Derek Rose the benefit of the doubt that everything that he reported, he believed to be true. But he didn't have the knowledge that Sissy Taylor had going into this case. And yeah. In, and in my interview with him, he said that he had never spoken to her regarding the case. The one thing I thought about, right, he made all those other phone calls. And then it's not, why not call the one person that had been intimate with this? case the whole time it's a great question i thought about it when you were discussing when we were bringing up he contacted all the right parties except the person who had been writing all the articles about the case just drop her a line hey sissy we got this fax in um and i'm gonna write this article about it and then i don't know the workings of a of a newsroom 
and you know how that professional courtesy extends right or what's supposed to happen um but if i know someone's been writing 11 articles about something for about something that for the past 18 months just give them a quick line hey i got this in i'm gonna write something up not only does she have a wealth of information yeah but she's vested yeah in this case it's 18 18 months 18 months forget the number of articles just 18 months 18 months trying to figure out who had done it? Does it make you suspicious that Sissy would never write another article on Richard Adderson? Yeah, that's the that's Derek Rose article pretty much kiboshed any other future article coming out of the union leader after that. Right. At Isn't least <laughs> at least in the 90s. Right. So there may have been developments. Yeah. After that, but in the 90s, when Sissy Taylor was the crime reporter, she would never write about Richard Adderson again. What do they call it? A swan song? Yeah, that would be her, her like, what, the last article? This so, article would be the swan song for the Adderson case, at least, you know, from the union leader in the 90s. Right. In the late 90s. So Sissy's swan song wasn't even written by her. Yeah. It was written by Derek Rose. That to me also is a little suspicious. A little suspicious. All right. So I will see you again in a couple of weeks when we tackle the idea of the cold case. So until then, Mr. Slim Turkey, great having you. Thanks for having me. I'll cluck you later, guys. All right. Turkey time. Once again, here we are, standing in a maze of obstacles and distortions, having chased a suspect down a dead end. What we see can either be reality or a distortion of our mind. Our eyes filter what we see through our hopes, our biases, and burning desires to solve this case. Things aren't always as they seem, or are they? Down the hall, a shadow forms a silhouette. Ambient footsteps are heard with no clear path as to how to follow them. The passion and determination to secure justice and find the light of truth is wearied by the confusion of false appearances, misdirection, and another apparent dead end. The fire only kept alive by the fact that someone, somewhere knows.
while many paths have already been tread and many dead ends have been encountered, we're not going anywhere. The goal of our podcast has been to shine a light on this case with the hope of finding answers. Any amount of attention we can bring to this case has always been done with the aim of bringing justice to Richard Adderson and to his family. So we again stand in the maze, looking down another hall. Someone, somewhere, knows something. And we will find them. It's only a matter of time. I want to thank you all for listening to the show and joining us on this journey. We'll see you again in two weeks from today. If you like the show, fatten up the turkey with some positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're starting to build some momentum with your calls. So please keep calling with your questions, comments, theories, and most importantly, your tips about this case at 917-410-5528. We'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. See the luck I've had can make a good man turn bad. So please, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me get what I want this time. dream in a long time See the life I've had can make a good man bad So for once in my life let me get what I want Lord knows it would be the first time Oh Lord, Lord knows it would be the first time